Peter, who had previously denied Christ three times, he demonstrated a lack of self-control at Jesus' arrest when he took a sword to one of the guards, is now exhibiting this supernatural courage and, and precision as he is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He takes three different Old Testament passages and demonstrates the fulfillment of prophecy written hundreds of years before by shining the light upon Christ, and particularly his resurrection. His objective is to hold his audience responsible for their part in the death of Christ and to show them their need of repentance. And I think for us, one of the things I think we can gain from this as we take a look at this passage is a tremendous confidence in who Christ is, in the historicity of Christ, uh, which, of course, is continually under attack in our society. But I hope that after we get through this passage and uh, even the message today would be a great encouragement as to the foundation of our faith. So let's stand as we take a look at this sermon. We're going to read the whole thing, and I like to keep this constantly before you uh, each week just so we can uh, get the context, even though we're only going to cover several verses, verses 22 through 24 today. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having uh, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. I don't know about you, but I never tire of reading this sermon. It is tremendous. And it has so many different aspects to it. There is, there is the judgment of God. There is prophecy. Uh, but it ends with this great hope that even those who were guilty of uh, playing their part in the crucifixion, He's offering them salvation in Christ. It's an amazing message. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts in a powerful way as we, as we dive into this, we dive deep, and I pray that your Holy Spirit might uh, just enlighten, encourage, challenge. May we not leave from this place the same. May we be open for you to do a work in our heads and our hearts as you see fit. And I pray for these your children, my brothers and sisters, that you would give us greater confidence in the risen one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, of course, there's no doubt as to who Peter is speaking to. We talked about this last week. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Now, remember that in the audience are many people who cried out for the death of Jesus. Same people here today for that sermon in Acts 2. He was not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for to deliver them from Rome. So they had him killed. They are in Jerusalem, and many in the audience have undoubtedly come from towns and regions that Jesus traveled in. They not only heard of Jesus, but many of them saw him do the miracles that we read about. And Peter says that God did these mighty works, wonders, and signs in your midst. Jesus did these miracles, Peter is saying, in your country, in your city, in your temples, as you yourselves know, he says. They could not deny these miracles taking place. The whole Jewish world rang with the story of the miracles of Jesus. But because of their hardened hearts, these religious officials were denying the source of these miracles. And they, in fact, attributed it to Satan. We read in Matthew 12, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, 
Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. I mean, the Pharisees were just throwing anything they could against the wall, hoping that it would stick, other than the obvious answer that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Now, Nicodemus, who was kind of a, a lone wolf of Pharisees, was more honest in, in his appraisal when we read in John 3, 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What a contrast, right? The point is that we can have confidence in the claims of Christ, that our faith is rooted in evidence. Rudolf Boltman, who was considered one of the most skeptical New Testament critics of the 20th century, said, the Christian fellowship was convinced that Jesus had done miracles, and they told many stories of miracles about him. Most of these stories contained in the Gospels are legendary or at least dressed up with legend, but they can be no doubt that Jesus did such deeds, which were, in his and his contemporaries' understanding, miracles. That is to say, events that were the result of supernatural, divine causality. <laughs> I mean, even Boltman says that miracles and exorcisms belong to the historical Jesus. You see, the only reason to be skeptical that these were genuine miracles rather than some psychosomatic healings would be when you have a predisposition against miracles or a worldview that refuses to accept that there can be supernatural occurrences on the earth. So the intellectually honest skeptic has to conclude that at least the historicity of the miracles of Jesus is not in doubt. Now, like Boltman alluded to, many people will claim that the miracles of Jesus are just legend. You know, stories told from people who perpetrate a myth through millennia. However, legends develop centuries after the supposed event. And Peter's sermon, listen, is in the same generation, even within months, within the time of Jesus. Not only is it not enough time for legend to develop, but this is within the same area, the same time, the same people that Jesus did the miracles to or who saw the miracles. No one could refute the occurrence of the miracles. If it didn't happen, all anyone had to say was, hey, I was there. That didn't happen. But people couldn't say that. People couldn't say, he really didn't heal the blind man. He really didn't walk on water. He really didn't rise from the dead. They couldn't say those things because they were facts of recent history. It would be just as ridiculous for somebody to say to me 
There was no tornado in Joplin in 2011. Wait a minute. You are nuts. Not only do I remember it, I saw it. That's what I could say to them. In fact, I was there in some of the cleanup. I saw the devastation, as did many of you as well. In fact, I saw the tornado itself. We could argue what caused the tornado, but we could not argue about the existence of the tornado. We could not argue whether the tornado occurred. And if you do argue that, I would have to tell you to put away your crack pipe because you are on something, okay? It is why the record of the miracles of Jesus are so profound. Because one, there are so many of them. They're numerous. And it was a bunch of people who had firsthand knowledge of this. They were firsthand witnesses, and they wrote about it. Or they were telling others about it. You know, that's a lot different than miracles claimed by other religious leaders where there is a blatant lack of corroboration. You know, Muslims deny the divinity of Christ but fail to adequately demonstrate any corroboration for Gabriel giving revelation to Muhammad. The miracles of golden plates found by Joseph Smith from the angel Moroni, no archaeological Evidence, no other substantiation, no witnesses. My point is that there's something unique about the claims of Christianity. My dear friends, our faith is not a naked claim, just like any other religious claim. Anyone can stand up here and say, God told me this, God told me that. When no one sees it, there is no evidence. So when Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Our faith, even in the existence of God, is not like believing in the tooth fairy. There is evidence for the existence of God. Atheism demands one has to look away from the evidence. Come up with something that is so implausible, I would suggest atheism takes more faith than Christianity. Why? Because the heart of mankind does not want to face the fact that there is a God who exists who judges mankind. That thought is so traumatic to the soul and the mind that we refuse to believe it. But consider that every scientist pretty much agrees that the universe had a beginning at some point in the past. And we understand that everything that exists has a cause. And that best explanation is God. Stephen Weinberg, a Nobel laureate in physics, gives further description. He said, at about one hundredth of a second, the earliest time about which we can speak with any confidence, the temperature of the universe was about a hundred thousand million degrees centigrade. This is much hotter than in the center of even the hottest star. So hot, in fact, 
that none of the components of ordinary matter, molecules or atoms or even nuclei of atoms, could have held together. He goes on, the universe was filled with light. That sounds eerily familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. I mean, how is life itself sustained? An infinitesimal difference in the rate of the universe's initial expansion, the, the strength of gravity, or dozens of other constants and quantities would have created a life-prohibiting rather than a life-sustaining universe. And instead, all of these forces are kept on a razor's edge to sustain life. The best explanation for that is somebody is monkeying with that. (laughs) That there is an intelligent designer who keeps that all together and sustains life. Or take morality. Philosophers love to dismiss morality as an invention of society or some evolutionary tactic for survival. But even the most rock-ribbed atheist finds things like child torture or racism or rape truly morally objectionable and thereby denying their own theory of moral relativism. In addition, the most remote tribes who've been cut off from the rest of civilization. They have things in common with every other civilization in recognizing certain virtues like justice over injustice or like greed or, or cowardice. The point is, is that while there are differences in civilly in how they may work those things out, there are recognizable universal Virtues or morals. The best explanation is that universal morality does exist. And a moral lawgiver or God is the best explanation as to how they got there. Atheism provides no basis for morality. No meaning for life. And if the logical outworking of a belief system fails to to account for what we instinctively know to be true, why not discard that? You know, we we could talk further about the confidence that we could have in the Bible through the fulfilled prophecy, through archaeology, for its unity, which stands above all the rest of, of religions who claim divine revelation from their religious books. No other book even comes close. What's interesting is that Luke, who was a medical doctor who wrote the book of Acts and also bears a gospel by his name, some have looked at all the meticulous details that Luke has in the book of Acts, and they say that all these are just made up. Sir William Ramsey, who was a famous historian and critic of the New Testament, became a Christian after searching out the archaeological evidence. And when Ramsey looked closely at Luke's writings in Acts, he noticed 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands talked about without air. And this led Ramsey to recant 
his critical views. And I quote, I began with a mind unfavorable to acts. It did not lie then in my line of life to investigate the subject minutely, but more recently I found myself often brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, um, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. Listen, confidence that we can have in the historical accounts of Jesus. And Peter's sermon in Acts 2 highlights then the resurrection of Christ as evidence for Jesus being the Messiah. We read in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That word pains or pangs that we read is actually can be translated birth pains, suggesting that the tomb of Jesus was like a womb out of which Jesus was born in resurrection. After being crucified, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. That means that his location was known to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the Romans. This was not some hidden tomb. They all knew where he was buried. On the Sunday after the crucifixion, the tomb was then found empty by a group of his women followers. Indeed, nobody claimed that the tomb was filled up with a body. Nobody claimed that. It was vacant. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups confirmed that it was empty, and they experienced the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. And the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead despite their predisposition to the contrary before that. And they were even willing to go to their death proclaiming Jesus was resurrected because the probability of them knowingly and willingly dying for a lie was extremely improbable. The reasoning follows the evidence if Jesus did miracles. If he did, in fact, rise from the grave, then certainly God had his hand upon him. God sanctioned him. God approved of him. And he indeed sent his son. He is who he claimed to be, the very son of God, the savior of the world. My friends, the evidence has not changed. The record still stands, and Peter makes a couple other observations This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus was not accidental. It wasn't like, you know, the the Romans got out of control, the Jews got out of control, and God's up in heaven saying, oh no, what do I do now? It wasn't that way at all. And Peter was in fact holding the Jewish authorities, or we could even say the Roman politicians, they were culpable for their part. But the death of Jesus actually fulfilled prophecy. And all the human instruments involved served God's purposes. Isaiah 53.10 spoke of Christ prolonging his days after his death, speaking of the resurrection and death, 
And in fact, and Peter quotes later in Acts 2 from Psalm 16 that Jesus would not see his flesh corrupted. He would not be abandoned to Hades. Again, referring to the resurrection, a prophecy about that. You can read all of Isaiah 3, and it, it, it gives details about the crucifixion and the resurrection. The apostle Paul would say later in Acts 13, 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. This was not an accident. The Jewish crowd at Pentecost could not avoid their responsibility in Jesus' death. However, in the mystery of God's sovereign will, he was working in these events, using human rebellion to bring about his eternal purposes. God worked through the tragedy of the cross and brought about the triumph of the resurrection. Now, of course, Jesus died on a Roman cross, so they were just as culpable. But we can't forget that in the, in the worst of circumstances, when we too are maybe wanting to scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has not forgotten us. He's still working his, his sovereign will in our lives. I mean, I suppose it's a fair question, and we, we would ask, how in the world could God still be at work in, let's say, 9-11? Or when cancer hits a family? Or when I've been abused? Or when a spouse dies and, and small children are left? How can you explain God's sovereignty in Adolf Hitler? Why doesn't God intervene more in something like the genocide in Bosnia? My friends, the cross demonstrates that God has judged the worst evil in the world. And he's going to make right the wrongs. God, through the judgment that was poured out on Christ on the cross offers a way for every human being to be forgiven of the worst of evils. And for those listening to Peter, they had committed the worst of offenses. They had killed the Son of God. They murdered Jesus. When Peter said about God's will was happening in the cross, it stripped away the arrogance of the Jews at that time. See, they thought they had judged Jesus. They thought they had put him away for good. Jesus was God's judgment on the world. And the suffering Savior's death was God acting out his judgment and atonement of their sin. And for our sin as well. And if you think about it, the judgment of God only makes sense in a moral universe. I mean, progressive Christians today eschew the judgment of God because they attach some bastardized meaning of it. I mean, the judgment of God is the end result of living in a moral universe that God has made. I mean, how can we, on one hand, 
and particularly those who complain about, you know, how God works, how can they decry the problem of evil? Claim that God is asleep at the wheel in the midst of all the injustice in the world. And then turn around and moan about the judgment of God. Complain about it. For instance, many will judge God for how cruel he was in the Old Testament and categorically reject the record of it. The fact is we have made little gods of ourselves by standing as jurors of God's actions, as unjust as he has dealt with human rebellion, particularly in the Old Testament. I mean, think of it, human beings having the hubris to judge God. Let's just turn that around. Where did man even get the ability to make moral judgments if not from the moral law giver? Where did man get his sense of his version of how love wins or, or tolerance reigns supreme unless he had a context for valuing human beings who are in fact made in the image of God? Because I challenge you, you can't come up with any other value for human beings that demands that kind of morality that's going to stick. Claims that evolution has developed a moral code for survival, I would suggest, is the cruelest of theories. The evolutionary moral man has an oil light with no engine. He has no way to gauge the accuracy of his conscience. And so, in fact, his conscience is nothing more than a nuisance, and he ought to work to get rid of it. His conscience has no relationship to the real world if no moral order really exists. The only way to adequately explain the world we live in is to acknowledge a sovereign God who judges the world, and he judges our hearts and actions. That makes sense. It's the judgment of God that actually allows my heart to be at rest. Without the judgment of God, in fact, the cross of Christ has little meaning. And sin, it would just be some kind of cultural concept. God delivered up Jesus because he is a just and loving God. He is just, and he had to punish sin. He is loving and willingly offered up his son. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so Peter is boldly showing how the cross was not only necessary, but planned by God. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God was not going to allow Jesus' ministry and work to end in death. Jesus was such a righteous and powerful person that death had no power over him. And my dear friend, I want to submit to you that we can have the fullest confidence that God's judgment for us was poured out upon Christ and that our hope for the forgiveness of our sins rests upon Christ alone. We know this 
because the evidence points to the fact that Christ died. He was buried, and he rose again the third day. And the best explanation for these events is that he is indeed the Son of God, and therefore we can hold our hope with great confidence, and thanks be to God for his Son. Let's pray.